You are listening to ARD Healthcare. I am your host Anirban. You can expect deep, insightful conversations with stakeholders from clinical, technical, industrial and regulatory affairs about the bottlenecks of bringing AI to scale up access to healthcare at the planetary scale. I thank the Mikhai Society and Hessian AI for supporting the podcast. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. Welcome to the eighth season of AI Ready Healthcare. Together with my co-host, Henry, it's a pleasure to welcome our guest today, Professor Stephen Gilbert. So Stephen is a professor in medical device regulatory science at the Elsa Kroner Fosenius Center for Digital Health in Dresden, Germany. His research goal is to advance regulatory requirements, especially for software as medical device and artificial intelligence in medical device. After Jakob Kather and Stephanie Speidel, Stephen is the third guest in this podcast from this Dresden ecosystem. So I met him during the Data for Health conference organized by the Federal Ministry of Health in Berlin. And I was really fascinated by his points on regulatory aspects of uh, AI, both for large language models as well as the imaging models. So today we will focus on two of his recently published articles. Both of the links will be in the podcast description. And these are around the regulatory aspects of continual learning and large language models. But first of all, welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Um, thank you. It's great to speak to you. Um, just to mention both Jakob and Stephanie, Jakob Katter and uh, Stephanie Speidel are you know, people I actively collaborate with. Um, um, they do great work here in, in TU Dresden. So I'm just learning and starting to interact with, with some of their work in a, a deep way. Hi, Stephen, and welcome to the podcast also from my side. It is a great pleasure to have you here today uh, because yeah, you're such an exceptional guest. I mean, uh, you're a professor for uh, medical device regulatory science, which is something yeah that is quite exceptional, uh, at least here in Germany and I believe worldwide as well. And it's a highly interdisciplinary research field. So I'm really looking forward to today's episode. But first, let's start with the way you got uh, to that position and to the journey through your academic career. So can you tell us a bit about your becoming, Stephen? Okay. Um, yeah. So it's always, always a challenge of where, whether you start with where you are now or start with where you started. Probably I'll, I'll go backwards through my, my career steps. So I'm, so as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a full professor of medical device regulatory science in TU Dresden. I've um, been here for approximately 15, 16 months. Anyway, since March of 2022. So I count badly backwards, but and you can edit and correct the, my uh, mental arithmetic on the number of months I've been here. My role directly before I, I started as a, as a research professor was in a digital health company based in Berlin startup scale-up company called Ada Health. And I was there for about three years as the director of clinical studies and director of clinical evaluation. So I think in terms of the exceptional role of um, professor in medical device regulatory sciences, well, there aren't that many professors of uh, medical device regulatory affairs or 
of um, regulatory science in Europe. There are, are some in the US, but most of those professorships wouldn't have come from industry experience. Most of them would actually focused on academic experience, academic legal experience, particularly in law faculties, um, perhaps sometimes in, in, um, in clinical interactions with the regulatory, but not on the core face of, of regulatory delivery. And I think that's my um, specific specialist area of having been involved in the, in the delivery side um, for, for a number of years. So, so three years with um, Ada Health, a massively interesting experience. I still interact with them in a a great company and a real learning experience and um, all of the excitement of the startup scale up digital health work. Before that, I worked in uh, probably a more traditional company, but a very interesting company um, that I really enjoyed as well. It was a company called Biotronic in Berlin. I worked there for two years in the area of regulatory clinical evaluation. Before that in my journey, so that was that was a, that's a company that's in the area of implantable defibrillators and um, implantable pacemakers and uh, before I worked in, in that area on the clinical regulatory interface I actually worked within cardiac modeling so computational biology physics-based modeling of the heart of the heart cell in my later years and of the heart organ and very much an area of virtual tissues and um, and simulation and I think um, you've mentioned Anirban that you also worked in this broad area of the virtual physiological human human type area and this is the area that I worked in in my postdoc research for many years about 10 years um, lastly in the Max Delbruck Institute for Molecular Medicine in Berlin in cardiac cell modeling calcium modeling before that in Bordeaux in the group of Michelle Heisiger in um, overall cardiac tissue arrhythmia modeling and before that in the University of Leeds in where I did my first postdoc and my PhD and before that, I was a veterinary surgeon in working in practice. I, I'm medically trained initially. I decided that a job purely in practice wasn't. And I, I got interested in computational modeling and doing a master's and then PhD in computational modeling, really because I was interested in science, but the laboratory Eppendorf pipette moving of fluids around wasn't my greatest skill. So therefore, the, the combination of um, scientific thinking more computer-based work appeared appealed to me. So that's why I chose a PhD in that, in that particular area. So if I think of it, so you started as a purely clinically trained professional in the veterinary surgery, and then you moved into computational modeling, then you moved into the industry, the startup scene, and you walked there and then you moved into regulatory. So it's, it's, I would say you have probably touched all the silos that do not talk to each other at all. So what was your experience in terms of actually having a communication across these silos? How, what works, what doesn't work? Um, so, yeah, so communication across silos is, is, is very, very important. Like I do say as a strength of my experience level, I do have experience in, in many of these pockets. And that so getting the communication to work well is, is really important. So, so if I if I identify silos that maybe really don't communicate that much, has been historically, has been academic, science and regulation have a relatively in the past have had a relatively low level of communication. So not really much knowledge of the industrial entrepreneurial 
process with its interaction with regulation has been very, very low level of, of, of interaction in the past. And I think that's changed with increasing knowledge of the importance and also maybe somewhat with heavier regulation that's come in there's been a greater acknowledgement within the last five years or so from within academic groups of the importance of regulatory science the importance of regulatory aspects and that's increased but but if we go back very historically and even some groups at the moment there's very much of a um, a lack of understanding of what the regulatory processes are. Now that that also exists in certain aspects of the of industry particularly in the startup industry so Certainly, if we go back two, three years ago, many, many startups in the space of digital health and AI, digital health, there's been a kind of vague knowledge that regulatory could be some kind of blocker or there needs to be some delivery to it, but very, very little knowledge of what that might be. And also, to some extent, a little bit of reluctance to engage with that. And as we get later into the, the the nature of medicine paper on large language models, I think we're going to talk about part of the paper, the, the, the themes of that paper is actually about exactly that point. You know, um, a lot of very disruptive approaches to innovation start off from the point that probably regulation is wrong, that the regulation is something we need to move beyond or or we're cleverer than the regulation. And there may be some aspects of that, but I'm, you know, obviously coming from a position of being a professor of medical device regulatory science, if I didn't believe some regulation was necessary or appropriate or right, then I probably wouldn't be working in this field. So it's not to say that everything that's ever been thought of in the field of regulation is correct and is like the Great Wall of China and will never move. It's, um, of course, it needs to be flexible. It needs to be reactive. And that reactivity and intelligence and adaptability, even adaptability within regulation, of course, needs thinking outside conventional silos. Now, whether on the regulatory side of this, if we look at regulatory bodies, um, notified bodies, competent authorities, all aspects of all of those silos are represented. So most people who are working within regulatory science, within the regulatory bodies, actually come from an engineering background or a physics background. They actually have a detailed technical knowledge. In the last years, those regulatory bodies have increasingly employed expert clinicians. So if, if you now have a, an assessment of a, a relatively high-risk AI-enabled medical device, let's say in the area of radiology, it will be assessed now by an experienced radiologist, clinical radiologist who's worked at the core face of uh, medical practice, and it will also be assessed by people from a technical and engineering background. Now, when they are working within a notified body perspective, a regulatory body perspective, of course, their thinking becomes very much dominated naturally by the regulatory processes, by the policing side of this argument. But many of the, certainly the leading people within those regulatory bodies, the, the, the more senior people or the, the middle manager level, there are some really, really excellent, highly technical aware professionals. I, you know, I think of some that I interacted with in, in my research, you know, within some of the biggest notified bodies, and they're really highly informed in terms of what the latest developments within the within the in the in um, within the academic sector and the, the the big tech sector so i mean the non-medical device i'm thinking of kind of the google OpenAI, microsoft ibm um, even apple um, facebook type sides of, of of ai but there, there tends to be a more of a to some extent uh political silos as in which side are you on which side are you fighting for i would say rather than divisions between like technical or clinical silos there tends to be a combination of those experiences on each side. So maybe that you're on a 
startup side with a co-founder group, who, you know, the uh, chief technology officer who's highly technical, a chief medical officer who's highly medical, uh, a chief business officer or CEO who's highly business knowledge, but then they're in the camp of entrepreneurship must move fast, regulatory is in the way. And you have similar or highly experienced people working for the regulatory bodies and they're the, in slightly in the group of, look, hang on a minute, we're going to have to be responsible for answering of why these devices have been approved when it comes out that big problems occur when they're in the market. So, of course, they have a degree of this policing role. And then within medical practice, um, within you know, if you're looking at a, a pure hospital group, there will be less of that detailed technical understanding in many cases. And say within the areas of um, radiotherapy, you have highly technical expertise going alongside the delivery of therapy and the, the imaging side and the clinical side. But you get another side of the encampments of silos. But I, I don't personally see it as, as technical knowledge or types of knowledge. I see it as more encampments of political positions rather than than um, you know the engineers aren't talking to the medics. But I, I may be wrong on that, but that's my own perspective. But what you are saying makes total sense in a way because you have these different groups who has, of course, their different incentives, their different interests. And if they are not really trying to understand beyond what is going on, then they would have their own silos. And I guess cross-disciplinary thing is one way of approaching it. But also what you mentioned is that, for example, the typical technical situation which in our case is so much on the internet bubble and how fast you can be, bring products like break fast and learn from it, etc. So that philosophy, I guess, goes pretty much against how medical device is being developed. So, so that's probably also a cultural difference across these two silos that makes things problematic. I was checking your webpage and you mentioned one thing in the web page is that basically the innovation cycle from an you know, initial idea to the approved medical device is taking increasingly longer. And whichever part of this, let's say, political spectrum we are in, all of us mostly agree that this should not be where things are heading. It should be at least staying at the current level or shortening. And so basically, can you give us some insights from your perspective, why this is the case and what can potentially be done to reverse the trend? Yeah. So although it's a quote from my website, I'll slightly take a, a multidimensional or complex opinion on that, despite the fact that it's a quote. So there are certain aspects of that which are inherently inevitable. And there are certain other aspects that might be somebody's fault. And I think you have to acknowledge that there are both aspects to it. So increasingly, medical devices, and we'll talk about all medical devices for, for, for a while here, so the whole spectrum of whether they have a digital aspect or not, are becoming increasingly complex and interact with in, increasingly additional systems. And also this increasing requirements from a regulatory perspective in terms of laws, guidance, and standards. And all of those work together. And at the same time, there has been introduction of new legislation in the space. So if we take Europe, MDR, a new enhanced framework of degree 
of regulatory challenge introduced over a relatively short period of time. So that introduction time in itself is a very, very important aspect of the dynamic and the level of new, not entirely new hurdles, but higher hurdles. And the introduction speed has been, of course, incredibly politically sensitive, and there have been some changes to that. So you're, you're getting a number of factors which are coming together. If we go back to this, this fault question, you, you get certain types of fundamentally new technologies which come along. And let's say let's say we take an example of a, um, a pacemaker. So except that this is, you know, now pacemakers can involve aspects of AI, but when they were first envisaged, they didn't involve aspects of AI. The very first versions of these technologies were actually relatively simple from an you know, engineering perspective, and they came around in the you know, 1950s, 1960s, possibly getting a decade wrong on either side there, but around about this period of time. They came about at a time when there wasn't huge regulatory oversight, and there were also relatively simple technologies and relatively isolated technologies. So you could develop those effectively in an island, isolated from the rest of the medical world to a ex large extent, and to the other medical devices lot in isolation to lots and lots of requirements in isolation from say cybersecurity requirements when you developed the pacemaker in, in 1950 or 1960 you weren't asking the question how do i manage the cybersecurity of this device how do i get this device to interact with the epic i name an example of a manufacturer but epic um epic um, electronic health record system all of these questions just did not exist you did not have to answer a question how do I ensure that it, I don't interrupt? I don't interfere with um, radio signals. You didn't even have to answer a question. How do I ensure the patient can go through an airport and the X-ray scanner? You didn't have to answer the question. How do I ensure the patient can go through an MRI scanner? You just kind of developed the pacemaker. The initial use case were patients who would die without it. They had an absolute requirement to have that device, and. It was implanted in relatively small number of cases within those patients. And you could kind of develop it in an island and people would maybe look back and that say it's a golden era. We could have, you know, you know, garage type manufacturer, you know, small spin-off from a university campus. We could have a, you know, somebody that's very technically minded, somebody that's clinical minded, they could build this together, you know, with um, could build up a team, you know, of type of expertise, a little bit like, you know, building cameras as they used to build in, in Dresden, you know, skills, engineering skills would make that as a device. And now in the modern world, people describe it as um, instead of having the, the garage type mentality, you've got rooms and rooms of people. I'm now probably based at home typing, just typing into the computer and not developing anything. I'm I'm slightly opposed to this mindset. I, I experience it in many companies I worked for. You know, the, all these people doing things that are not building the product. I come from a regulatory background after working in academia, but the regulatory background. The regulatory quality work and the delivery to standards is getting the thing to work. It's getting the thing to work, acknowledging that it needs to be cyber secure or else it's not delivering any therapy. You know, if it can, as soon as it's released, it can be hacked by a passerby using their mobile phone. It's, it's really is not acceptable in the model world. We take cybersecurity, we take data privacy if it's leaking data. And as soon as you start to add on, you know, it needs to be compatible with MRI. We add, we add on to these lists. Those people typing are typing things to ensure that the development of that device meets those requirements. And at the end, that's to do with the understanding of the flows of information. And it's understanding the principle that you need to plan. Your device does not meet those requirements of the modern world by mistake. And I'm not mentioning the requirements to actually deliver an appropriate clinical therapy and that you sell it to the appropriate set of patients. Those don't happen by accident. 
And in the future, they may all happen through AI. You know, there may be no humans involved in that. We could maybe talk later about the digitalization and automation of parts of the development process and regulatory process. That's a very interesting theme, but they don't happen by mistake. So, so a lot of that is the reason why development is more complex. And th there's also sometimes, if I, it's a very long answer to a short question, but the, the papers, both of the papers we mentioned actually interact with these themes um, 100%. You know, they're both about these themes in, in specific areas. There's another aspect of it, which is some in some companies, there's this kind of in envisaging of the separation of the processes and it, it relates partly to this mentality of the either in a modern startup or in a company coming from you know Mittelstand German engineering and companies that were started in the 1950s and 1960s that the engineering the engineers are the the engineer developers the inventors and sometimes the founders of the company are the clever people and yeah we have to employ these paperwork people you know they push paper around we kind of need them we're not going to pay them very much we're certainly not going to let them interfere with the ingenious process of the ingenious single creator they kind of separate the processes in my personal philosophy, this works extremely badly. What you actually need is everybody thinking about what the requirements are of what you're building. You know, it's, it's like design thinking, but it's designed for the world that the device needs to work in, including AI, purely AI-based devices. This separation where you've got the irritating regulatory people just saying no, actually working towards integrating them across your entire thinking and concept of we are going to produce the best product, which means the best in every aspect, including what it needs to deliver in terms of safety, security, quality, shininess, appeal on the market, are all the integration of regulatory across the entire process. But I could go on on this theme for many, the entire podcast, and probably I should stop for a question on that. You can challenge me on that of why I'm wrong. It's a very good point, uh, actually, and something that we also want to propagate on this podcast. Maybe the audience has already noticed that we are uh, recently selecting more and more guests with a regulatory background because we find it uh, equally important for either engineers or uh, clinicians or anyone who is involved in the product development process. So uh, you have mentioned before the two papers that we are going to discuss, and I would like to start with the very first one. Uh, we will also put the links to both of the papers uh, into the show notes so everyone can check them out. The first paper I would like to discuss uh, is Fresh Out the Oven. It was released in June 2023 in Nature Medicine, and it has the title Large Language Model AI Chatbots Require Approval as Medical Devices. Actually, the title says it all. It's actually a very interesting point of view, um, if, especially if we are looking at uh, recent developments and recent voices in the press talking about artificial intelligence and ChatGPT, etc. But this is actually a point of view that I was somewhat missing and uh, I didn't know that I was missing it. So yeah, it's actually a very interesting perspective. So yeah, the title actually conveys the message that uh, ChatGPT and similar large language models that are available to the public require an approval as a medical device. So can you please tell us quickly why why that is the case? Okay, so so I'll maybe make a, a comment on the title. The, the original title was longer and at a greater, a greater degree of nuance. I always throw that in there because I'll come back to nuance and Microsoft nuance in the definition of why there's a degree of nuance in there. 
So it's it's not technically correct. And if you read into the article, you very quickly meet where it's not technical cor- technically correct that ChatGPT requires approval as a medical device, as it's currently presented. But that in itself is an incredibly challenging and nuanced and interesting position. And it brings in part of the role of regulation, the political aspects of regulation, and how regulation functions in the modern world and modern sources of information, even how medicine evolves over time beyond medical devices, and what is the transformation that we're seeing in our society in terms of information sources, the governance of information, who has access to information or who acts on information, and how the regulator interacts with information. So, so stating there that the, the the starting title for the article before it was edited to what it fits within the character count and what the the, the journal wants to, to produce would have had a, a degree of in the vast majority of applications. So, if we get back to that, most use cases of large language models in medicine either require approval as medical devices or or on the interface of requiring approval to be used as a medic um, as a medical device to be used in medicine or the next logical step of their development requires approval as a medical device and if we get to those back to those that are not the pure let's say the pure applica- um, application of um chat gpt so we, we we go for the moment on the side of the open ai side but you know it's obviously the google side of this and, and, and the future probably facebook uh, side of this in terms of integration, but they don't have the search engine. But if we take the, the starting point, OpenAI, as linked to Microsoft Bing, or one could take the Google large language models as linked to BARD, you have an incredibly interesting situation with the, the, the search engine already in its role in medical device. So it used to be in the past, I could kind of remember 1995 and 1996, and when one would first encounter you know, the Google search engine, and you'd first be kind of sitting there in front of a Google search engine, you think about what I'd type in, I used to sit in my lunchtime and I was studying veterinary medicine and trying to think of anything interesting I could put into these tools. And when you did that back at this time, you were provided right back at the start, an unfiltered list of results. I'd say, you know, type in what can cause throat cancer in a dog or a person, and you'd get this unfiltered list of results. And that it would say, you know, t- you know, five thousand hits or three thousand hits, much less back at this time. You get very little advertising, and you get a series of unsorted information sources. And there's kind of a, a very clear argument what this is doing. It's kind of like a library tool, back in the early days, days of a search engine. And over time, what that's evolved to be, particularly in the last four or five years, is um, to the level that if now one types that into Google, you'll get this thing called a featured snippet. This is pre-pre introduction of BARD, pre-ChatGPT, you'll type in a search and what causes throat cancer in people. Let's put it a different way. I have um, symptoms of um, um, really sore throat, I have real swelling in my throat, and I have um, blood in my spit. No, I'm not saying that's throat cancer. It could be. It's on, on the list. And, but somebody types that into to, to a modern search engine and asks, what could I have and what should I do? Instead of giving a certain list of library sources, which are articles, you know, might be one from Mayo Clinic, number one, might be um, you know, several down the list. What one gets now is a featured snippet with sorting of information, effectively a multi-purpose device without any labeling as a medical device, builds in its functionality to answer the question as a medical device, a featured snippet with specifically curated medical information with medical sources. And already 
one is on a, on a transition where that is a, is delivering a medical device functionality. Now, the, the search engines are already at a point of periphery in what they're doing and a known point of periphery in what they're doing in that they're developing a medical functionality, which is a medical device, but they're avoiding and just about avoiding being regulated pre-large language models of being, and this is covered in the paper, of being under medical device status by never making any formal claims. And they've been quite careful to do that, particularly, you know, there's really only been two big players, Bing, Google, and they've both been quite careful to do that. Now what we see happening with the introduction of large language models and large language models incorporation into the search engine is actually the ability to give a narrative answer to the same questions. A narrative answer initially with relatively minimal sources or the additional sources in giving contextualization to that answer. So you now have a, a machine which can give a highly narrative, highly convincing source of information by default with potentially a high degree of inaccuracy and hallucination, or at least sometimes a high degree of inaccuracy hallucination, very, very variable answers depending on how the inputs are provided and giving specific medical information. It knows from the point of the asking of the question by classification, is this a medical question or not? So th there remains a legal defense, but it's a very tetchy and limited legal defense by these companies to say, I'm, we're not a medical device because we're not labeling ourselves as such, but it's kind of a pretense. It's a complete pretense. And you kind of have a, a, a somewhat farcical situation that anybody who does specific subdomain medical development within AI is clearly within the AI category because they, they, they don't have this opportunity to say, we're just general, we're just Google, we're the source of the world's information. And they're trapped within this highly detailed methodological requirements and all of the time for medical um, device development, whereas the search engine kind of pretends to be the library, but they're not, they're a medical device developing within this. And one scene, like, we're slightly getting off the focus of the paper, but maybe to throw in a very specific example of this, which goes outside the large language model example. Really, really interesting, in, in, the politics of the entire area of AI changed in, you know, um, in November 2022. I often like to quote um, William Butler Yeats, in this context, and, and a very famous poet about um, everything changed, it changed utterly, the centre will not hold. But what you saw is, is many, many years of um, Google domination in this area. Google coming up with all the good ideas, Google being relatively reluctant from a regulatory perspective to push the boundaries. They already knew they were in the very pushing the absolute limits on what they were doing in medical device here before um, the launch of, of ChatGPT. And then come November and come March, GPT 3.5, GPT 4, of um, from a competitor, you know, OpenAI, so major competitor within Silicon Valley, and then Microsoft, and Microsoft kind of taking the gloves off, but with Google inventions initially, initially the concepts came from Google. Great Financial Time history piece on this, on the origins of attention and transformers, you know, the, titled the Transformers, and meaning that five or six Google engineers who came up with the original concepts. And then you have a situation kind of a gloves off, Google, Microsoft gloves off, and Facebook are in the spray in the, the background as well for obvious reasons and, and open access and Lama, et cetera. And then you get a situation of um, Google kind of saying code red. So this is covered a lot in the press, but it's also true. So kind of saying, well, we, we've been caught sleeping here. We, we haven't been proactive enough saying, let's jump outside regulation. Let's do it anyway, no matter what the regulators say. And, and quite an interesting example of that is a non-large language model approach or non, certainly non-text large language model approach. So Google for, for um, through Google Lens have actually launched in the, in the last couple of months, and I've commented a lot on this in, in social media, um, uh, LinkedIn particularly, 
of, of taking an approach of, of launching a diagnostic tool, which they're labeling as a diagnostic tool for searching skin images. So you take a picture with your smartphone camera, get a live list of search results, labeled as search results of images, saying is this a mal uh, malignant melanoma or not. But the defense there, it's not a medical device because we're giving you a list of curated results, is again falling into this category of very, very artificial playing with regulations. So they, they kind of know themselves as an indefensible long-term solution. If you're a small company, this is not a medical device, which absolutely clearly is a medical device. You're, you're, you're providing a tool. You're telling people, search your skin lesion, medical purpose, medical intended purposes. You're providing an interface, you're providing specific tooling in your engineering and your AI approach to then give a curated list of results. So kind of Google snippet on steroids, but then you're you're trying to pretend it's a library function. So this is this is the, the context of which the article is written in. And the, the article is written from a political context. You know, it's it's um the, the title was made shorter, but it's saying for, for these use cases, which are the search use cases, this is a medical device. Now, if we get to, to wider use cases, so, so maybe I should break there. Maybe we could, it's interesting to come on to Nuance and Microsoft, Nuance and, um, and Dragon, and the interaction between voice and large language models, which is a, a transformative area in itself, transformative in a different sense than transformer. All right. Uh, thank you very much for the summary. So essentially, the the problem of uh, large language models when they are made available to the public is that they do not necessarily serve well on uh, on clinical diagnosis because they they are simply not uh, specifically trained for clinical diagnosis. Meaning that if it's available to the public and uh, people like me, for example, uh, enter their symptoms and get an over or under diagnosis or simply a wrong diagnosis that may lead to uh, yeah, to severe consequences. But if we're looking at the regulatory part, basically the entities that enforce the regulation or the entities that design the regulation, what would you say would have to change for those uh, specific models that are made available to the public and yeah. may provide uh, medical advice? So I think in answering the question, it's important to go back kind of slightly repeating what I said before, but not in detail on the two types of, of situation where the public, we'll take the public, you, you, I don't, you've specifically asked about doctors, we can maybe deal with doctors later, we're taking the members of the public. There are two types of situations where the member of public can encounter this tool. There can be you, um, Henry, who's decided to develop a large language-based diagnostic decision support system as a product. You group together with Anaban, you, you form a new startup company, and you say, right, we are our, our DXGPT. Now, you couldn't take that name because that's one of the examples I give within the paper that already exists. And this is this kind of use case. But in that sense, it's, it's not quite a company. There are many examples, you know, um, Glass.ai or GPT Check. You can, one can look, there's a whole series of these companies that already exist. But you could decide to form that company. You face a different level of regulation than the search engines. The search engines can kind of say, we're just a search engine. No, they're not really. They're specifically developing a medical purpose under the cover, unfairly inappropriately because the safety question are exactly the same in the end to direct they're directing people into a medical use case developed as such whereas you only access them by labeling it right at the start we are your diagnostic service and when you label it as a diagnostic service effectively all of the technical challenges are the same it, um, all, and all of the regulatory challenges are the same but there's a huge political difference it's a very different thing for the fda or a European regulator to kind of knock on Google's door and say, excuse me, do you mind stopping what you're doing? 
versus Henry and Anurban, you know, they'll quite happily approach you when, you when you start doing this, at least in a European level if you're within Europe, once they've sorted out what they're doing with it. And there are many challenges to your design of that product. So let's say you're going to start building that. You could um, you could pay for a, a commercial license and have you know GPT-4 and access to the API for GPT-4 and build very, very little additionally. You, you could effectively just relabel OpenAI has already produced with very minimal prompt engineering. But let's say say you, you approach doing that, and in order to get and you're going to you're going to have to label that with some form of claims. So it's, those claims are going to be apparent from your any of your advertising materials you put out, but any just how you describe that website. So you're going to say let let's call it Doctor Henry, Doctor Gupta out there, which um, is released by Martin Screlly, who's the pharma bro. You may have come across that, but let's say it's called Dr. Henry. For, um, and so, so Dr. Henry, um, you, you're going to have some claims. You're going to have some websites. You're going to talk to some people in the media. You're going to promote Dr. Henry. So Dr. Henry, use Dr. Henry. Ask, ask it um, your medical problems. It's going to provide you a set of um, differential diagnosis and and, um, and what you do next. And you're also going to have to describe that on the website. Now, the approach many of these companies have taken initially is to try and say, well, this is an experiment. Although they've advertised it and they put it out there as to a real user, ask Dr. Henry, they then try and say on the website, this is um, purely an, um, an experiment. Don't use it for a real consultation. It's kind of hinted within the terms of conditions. The first time you access it, it's kind of a box and the, the user never reads that, but then they kind of say it's an experiment and it, it's, it doesn't really work. But until the regulators decide and act on this, it, it, might, it might pass before you receive a a letter through the post and and um, and you brought to court, etc. So there's the the route you could take of pretense that it's not and it's illegal. Clearly, with this, if you're starting this company, you know, within Darmstadt and and within Europe, you're you're in breach of the law because you're, you you've got something which you're clearly designing as a medical device, only artificially labeling it as not. Let's say you've already crossed that hurdle. You say, okay, I I need I'm going to, need to go for regulatory approval for this. You face the fundamental challenges, which are addressed in the nature medicine paper as a table. Now, um, this is a, 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 um, for table one within the article, and it sets out a series of the weaknesses of the, the relative weaknesses of large language models, and it talks about bias and hallucination and so on. Now, I'll give you an, just an interesting um, side note to this. I initially had this um, formatted within the OpenAI logo. I don't, do you know the OpenAI logo? It's a, it's a eight, it's around an octagon, and it's got eight leaves of a, like looks like a flower. And I actually put each of these points within the OpenAI logo in kind of red and um, um, yellow coloring, warning coloring. And in the, the center of the OpenAI logo, I had the word plausibly, followed by a question, dot, 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 question mark, hallucinated, dot, 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 question mark, plausibly biased, dot, 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 question mark, plausibly inaccurate, dot, 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 question mark, etc. And you, there's a, a series of eight fundamental starting point weaknesses of large language models. And one is hallucination. This is very, very well covered in, in the media. If you start from the process, that you, you guys are, I, I think, both engineers within the AI area, and, and you know probably more about the fundamental functioning of large language models than I do. But you start off from a, from a, a weakness towards hallucination, that there's a, a, a propensity built into the models in that you can try, you know, open AI, obviously do this, Google would do this with, with this through the approach of constraints, try and minimize it. But you start off from a fundamental problem that the models can hallucinate. There are many, many very well publicized resources in that. So when you seek to get your large language model 
approach, maybe based on, on a um, GPT-4 API, you're going to have to start off from how are we dealing with hallucination. Hallucination, by definition, would not be very acceptable in the product that we set out that you might want to build. There are various approaches you're going to maybe take to do that, but you're going to have to be pretty convincing in your regulatory process that you've planned a strategy for doing that. You have a series of tests to do that, and you establish you have done it. That's the, the fundamental process of, of regulation. We get to another one, which is bias, which is really quite different from hallucination. Hallucination can be making up really quite out of field, out of expectation answers, where you really are getting things that are very, very unusual. Bias is very different. Bias could be where you're asking a question and you're actually telling the, um, the large language model what cultural background you come from. So, for example, you may be telling it that I'm from a East Indian background, you're living in the UK second generation um, family, and it's completely disregarding that information, which would be highly relevant for your diagnosis. It, it should be building in a knowledge of the relevant propensity of risk to the information you're entering that, that uh, every GP in the country would do in terms of certain genetic considerations, certain cultural considerations, not, not from a from a not a biased perspective, but from a considered perspective of what's known about the epidemiology, you know, the disease propensity within those populations, and building it and not building that in at all. Or it could be building in, based on the fact that it's trained on Reddit, quite inappropriate biases. So the question from a regulatory perspective is, you know, any this you, if you face exactly the same problems, if you're um, not exactly the same problems, but related problems on bias, if you were a deep AI, um, you know, um, a, a deep learning approach based on image analysis within histopathology images, one could have sources of bias. The question is all always, what is the understanding of you as a company of what could be there as bias? What are the challenges? What are you doing in terms of your input data to deal with bias? Now, if you're using GPT-4 API, you have no control of the input data whatsoever. You're taking your large language model as um, off the shelf. Um, what are you, you may have approaches there which are based on aspects of prompt engineering to limit that, but how would you plan that? How would you, how do you plan for testing that? How would you establish that that was acceptable control of bias? You'd have to, as a company, come up with some answer of what acceptable control of bias is. But effectively, you're very, very challenging environment, I would say impossible, but very, very challenging environment to actually do this and to establish it. And I, I've already maybe touched on, on things one might approach. I'm not going to go through every single of the examples, but things you might try and address, which are which are part of table three within the paper of um, how to try and address these things. So you could take the approach of um, some form of multi-model approach. So you've got your, your, your GPT-4 API, You've got um, a degree of prompt engineering, which already is an aspect of some kind of control of inputs to the model. And there may be some layer of checking layer, a little bit like what Bard is doing with um, GPT-4 output already. You may have some reference of the information received against some secondary model of um, where you have um, reliable medical sources. And I'm not going to try and go into a technical level of how that's done, but that might be done in terms of a one-pass approach. Or it might be done in some form of feedback approach, which various people are exploring. But it's still going to be incredibly challenging from a regulatory perspective. The answer, the, the main question, well, you're going to get questions on all levels of that. Is your understanding of what the the definition of good, the definition of done, is right at the start? Is that is that adequate? Is your plan for a process of achieving these goals appropriate? Is your documentation and your results? from your testing appropriate and is your overall evaluation appropriate and have you actually reached the level have you reached what would be an acceptable definition of done are very very challenging questions and a point that's made within the same table 
is a challenge you have within large language models is from on from the outset, you have almost infinite answers and non-deterministic answers. So if 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 you ask the question at the moment, if you just go to the raw version of ChatGPT, which is kind of going to a slightly different use case than we've talked about, Dr. Henry, um, you, you're you will get different answers if both of you ask the same question. And if you ask, both ask the same question series, you'll get a series of different answers. And dealing with this, you're going to have to deal with this in, within your API approach. You're going to have to deal with the fact that you have um, the whole thing that you're based your entire product on is a software of unknown providence from a regulatory, on, um, unknown provenance, I always say providence, that's a typo I always make, software of unknown provenance from a regulatory perspective. You have very little control over it. It's a very dangerous position, actually, for you to, you know, you, you go into your, your your venture funding partners and you, you're going to try and convince them to give you X million euros as a, as a seed funding. And then you've got this plan of bringing this for further rounds of funding. You're going to make a huge amount of money from this. You're basing the entire thing off a single base large language model over which you have no control, for which there were no quality thresholds. And even if you developed a test strategy, which would try and answer some of these questions of you're delivering an acceptable definition of done in terms of bias control, in terms of hallucination level, level of accuracy, et cetera. What happens three weeks later, four weeks later? I'm sure you've seen, you probably know more about it than me, the underlying reasons. And I think it's one of the mysteries. People are speculating the actual performance of GPT-4 and basic questions has reduced recently. My own speculation on this is related to balancing cost to some extent, but I don't really know why. You know, maybe that they, they need to get down the compute cost per question. And therefore, they're making things run faster to run more cheaply. And this is giving less accurate answers. But who knows why it could be for related to something that's gone wrong in the training, you know, in the constraint process, in the retraining process. But anyway, there's a speculation the accuracy of results is less than it was. What do you do as a company? You launch to market. You've started to get your users. You're, you're watching your number, you know, your, your monthly gaining users. And then this happens in the background. How do you deal with that? How do you address that within your processes? Do you take your product off market? So that maybe slightly relates to the second paper. Yes, indeed. So I was I was thinking that the most obvious answer to that is let's let's do continual learning. <laughs> but of course, that that is also one of the heavily discussed area in the regulatory aspects of AI as a medical device. And we are seeing a lot of work there. FDA has been in the background working for the last two yeah. years or so, and they have this new draft on predetermined change control plan. And you, in particular, wrote a very interesting article on Mayo Clinic Digital Health around the continuous improvement of digital health applications linked to real-world performance monitoring, self-moving targets. Yeah. So. That's a really interesting idea because we are more involved into the technical parts of continual learning, how to actually do the learning, how to measure performance, ensure performance, etc. And you are coming at it from the regulatory perspective. So can you maybe just sort of summarize three takeaway messages from that article and then we go into more about it? Certainly. So, so one thing I would, would say about the article is it's much, it probably makes sense to take it away from large language models. And it's not that it, it doesn't apply at all to large language models. It's more that large language models are a specific and more complicated case. And it makes much more sense to, to look at um, 
deep learning approaches, say, in image analysis or even machine learning approaches in, in image analysis rather than large language models. So the reason being, we touched on it before, large language models are initially trained on a corpus, but then there's a whole series for all of the existing large language models of live ongoing constraint management by the operators of the large language models. So you've, you've kind of got different layers of training and those particularly those constraint processes, partly part of them are manual, probably part of them are, are automated that, and they're very, very obscure and they're not in control of anybody apart from the, the, the big tech companies who are, are producing those models. So if we, if we go to, let's say, um, machine learning or deep learning approaches for, for answering the question, I think what, one of the, the takeaway messages from the paper, I'll, I'll probably start from the title. So it, it, it's kind of, you know, the, paper, the, the title could be summarized, continuous improvement, safe moving targets question mark. So the question mark is quite important. It's about can approaches be developed that would allow continuous development on market adaptive software. And actually the article doesn't purely address machine learning. These ideas come from AI machine learning, but are, but are increasingly being discussed for agile software development. And that's quite an important aspect of the article. I'll probably deal with the machine learning most, and then we, we may later get to the specificities of, of um, agile software development as opposed to artificial intelligence approaches. So I would start off with the, the, the statement that I, I do think the action plan from the FDA is highly interesting, and I, I really think that we should be trying to explore approaches for safe moving targets. Within that action plan, the central criticality of planning definition of thresholds by the manufacturer and the clear definition of plans for monitoring are absolutely central. And the answer to the question of safe moving targets question mark could kind of be yes or no, depending on how the manufacturer oversees this and does it, and how the regulator oversees this and does it. So it can go in either direction. And I don't think that would be you know, any surprise to you in terms of the work you're doing. It's, um, it's, um, it's still an open question. And a point I would maybe make further to that is it's, I think the real world performance monitoring is going to have to be multimodal. So not a single you know, algorithmic test. It's going to have to be highly holistic, particularly when we're looking at most machine learning tools as they're currently applied, let's say in decision support, are very much physician in the loop tools. They don't purely have an algorithm. They don't purely have a algorithmic accuracy which is you know, determined by bias and, and the, the whole machine learning development process. They have a usability. They have an interaction with their user, usually a, a clinical user, and who's also the second part of that decision-making process in you know, a physician in the loop. And there is a question of automation bias, which is well acknowledged by the FDA in their wider work on, on AI, and the ongoing adaptation of the doctor, of the, the, the machine doctor interface. So all of those aspects come in to aspects of the continuous learning, continuous development approach. The overall premise of the article is that these approaches are being highly discussed. It's a review article in that sense. It's summarizing the approaches that are out there. It's not seeking to set out in a highly detailed method um, um, approach for AI approaches. How does one algorithmically carry out continuous learning, um, a continuous monitoring approach on the market? But I think it's really worth mentioning one aspect of that, which is touched on in the article. And in this case, I would refer to kind of figure two of the article, which is a kind of almost a visual abstract of the article. And this figure sets out, you know, continuous monitoring, but it talks about real world performance monitoring, continuous improvement. Now, continuous improvement is, from my mind, 
nothing more than the agile software development process that goes on within companies and the monitoring of their tools within companies, their development of their AI, their approach towards training and optimization of their approaches within the company um, in, in terms of the, the AI side. But if we look at the, then we've got this section under continuous approval. And I think this is where it gets quite interesting because there, there, are, there are points that are only touched at in a very low level of detail in the article, but there's this increasing move towards developing frameworks for testing of AIs. And there's a, there's a huge need for these. And there are currently, you know, university, industry, regulatory body collaborations, which are ongoing to investigate approaches for automate, automatic measuring of AIs. And in the future, or even at present, where companies are doing this within a, within an app um, you know, development process, so there are already companies that are taking this approach. What they're, what they're doing is developing automated approaches within the company side, so internal processes for as you develop new versions to independently within the company, you know, without a degree of separation, test those. And I don't mean purely when I'm talking here about product, I don't mean purely AI, you know, training sets and test sets and having separation when we talk about in terms of good machine learning practice. I mean taking that further to a separation or validation of entire product. And often you're you're talking about uh, speaking about a situation there where you're testing the entire interface beyond the algorithm. Where you're bringing in aspects even of usability, you're bringing in aspects of variability of, of presentation of data in a way that's not dealt with in your 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 simple separation of training sets and test sets within AI. And then there's a number of research projects which are going on, which are to some extent linked to the requirements under the AI Act. So the AI Act is going through Parliament of having external test approaches. So if one take an, could take an analogy of these two the development of in, in vitro diagnostic medical devices. If you develop an in vitro diagnostic medical device, you have your device tested by an external reference laboratory under the, the, the new European re regulatory framework. So it, it's kind of not enough anymore just to say I've tested it in-house and here are the test results. Dear regulatory body, look at our test report. Doesn't that result look good? With the um, in vitro diagnostic um, approach, which is developing, you um, have your device tested with samples under control conditions by the external laboratory, and they issue a result. And that approach is increasingly being developed for AIs. And it's still, say, an early stage of development. There are large projects which you uh, may, may well know of, collaborations with the Physikalische Technische Bundesanstalt in, in, in Berlin, group of Tobias Schifter there, is, is kind of leading in this in collaborations with Charity, Technische uh, University Berlin, um, French notified bodies are one kind of um, group that's looking at this in a major way. And there are other consortia and groups looking at this in um, Europe and wider. The World Health Organization ITU program that's linked to Heinrich Hein, Fraunhofer Institute in Berlin, also a major player in this area of actually looking at what methods can be developed for the reference validation, almost test platforms for AIs. And I think this is one of the big questions that for the regulation of um, AI and for the testing of AI in the future. Now these, these test approaches, automated platform test approaches, independent platform test approaches, will probably be somewhat limited in their ability to simulate the real clinical scenarios, but not fully limited. I think that's a question of how they are developed. I don't think there's, there's zero ability to, to test the physician in the loop. But they certainly, the point one gets to before the physician in the loop, the pure sensitivity, specificity, accuracy, positive prediction, um, uh, value, negative prediction, value of, of algorithms through an external test where it's then linked in this continuous approval loop 
is of critical importance, but also in the end, facilitating the better development of the space. Not to say there's not challenges in that, there are huge challenges in that. All right. I agree that there are multiple major challenges. And I think this figure you are talking about, this sort of a circle figures of more like those of you who are in LinkedIn, you might see this figure that's getting famous and uh, uh, people are tweeting uh, linkedin about it, I would say, about this continual monitoring, improvement, approval and deployment figure. And that's really quite interesting. So maybe one small thing that you can touch upon here, because one of the things that you mentioned here in the continuous improvement is basically defining the intended purpose of these AI as medical devices. And that's something that is almost unheard of in the typical setting of static locked machine learning. So maybe can you give us some insights of either from a really the entire software, uh, agile software development perspective, or maybe even in the AI software development perspective, what it really means? So within some of the wider discussion around the the US FDA action plan and action plan consultation on software as a medical device and um, predetermined change control plans, the whole adaptability question. And I'm referring in the wider context of that discussion rather than the very first draft guidance, which is released by the FDA, which is much narrower than that. This was a a point that came up in in, in quite a number of conversations. Does the is adaptivity on market continual development of devices strictly limited in terms of a fixed intended purpose? Or could the extension of aspects of intended purpose on market also be within this area? And I've spoken to some regulatory you know, people involved in these discussions on quite a senior level internationally in our interaction with the FDA. And they've been absolutely no, that's that's kind of you know beyond the beyond the Rubicon, it's you know completely outside any um, context. The intended purpose is hundred percent fixed. That would be we get into the realm of of chaos of multi-dimensional change in devices. If we were to consider um, this beyond the grail consideration of adaptation of the intended purpose, but to some extent, this is what happens already with conventional devices, particularly if we take the area of, of target population. So you may start off with relatively narrow target population, and you. You start off because of your your, your training sets. So let's say you you really have, for example, and I don't think that many medical devices, AI enabled medical devices, actually have this yet. But a situation where your diagnostic decision support with the physician in the loop has labeling, and then a feedback loop of the physician labeling back into your algorithm development. So I think a lot of people assume that happens a lot, and I'm actually not sure how often that really happens with on-market products. But you have a situation there where you could be, in a sense starting off from a relatively small set of data for um, geriatric populations and not enough in which you would want to 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 base a claim or even allow that within your intended purpose as part of your target population but inevitably with any product within on market use you will get a, a certain proportion of use beyond your intended purpose now if as a manufacturer that opens many questions you know how do you deal with that do you you certainly have to monitor it within you know, US and EU regulations, you have to monitor it. You might even have to take action about it at some point. But in the end, the clinicians have some degree of, of leeway of making a medical decision that it's appropriate to use this tool in this context. And you could start over time 
I'm not saying but cynically using that as a route, you know, kind of secretly say to your clinicians, include them anyway, and we'll, we'll extend the intended purpose. That also, I'm quite sure it goes on. But I'm talking about a non-cynical, natural evolution of greater data and greater quality of data towards an older population set. Whereas one uh, on, on that point, one may build that in. Now, one could always make the argument, well, that should be a stop then, a resubmission to the regulatory authority, uh, an assessment from the regulatory authority of an extended um, age range for the device. But one could also take it from the other perspective that it could actually be included within the predetermined change control plan. And that that same argument could extend to to a range of conditions. And like, like I'll also be quite clear, in terms of the use of active implantable devices, active devices and software as a medical device, this is relatively routine of what's really been going on on in the market for many, many years. So so there's this kind of... Sometimes in the side of the regulatory bodies, this argument, no, this is absolutely clear cut. No, that could not happen at the same time as it is it has been the reality of what's happening. And even I would say taking it outside the, the, the strict area of predetermined change control plans or on market adaptive AI, if you look at the FDA guidance on real world perform uh, real world evidence and the use of real world evidence for the approval of medical devices, there's certainly an, an acknowledgement of um real use in the market on patient sets or condition sets, which are wider than the strict label in order to develop data for the reapproval. So the reapproval loop linked to that data does feedback in. So it, it, the article asks a question in that sense. And it's that there, almost every article I write, and I'm, I'm not hiding away from this, is, is deliberately trying to push the boundaries a little bit. It's not, when I say it's a review, it's not purely trying to be descriptive of what the current status quo is. It's trying to say, well, what is the real status quo on the market? Highly nuanced. What is the status quo as seen by the strict inter- interpretation that a regulatory body may prepare to publicly state? We're going to be held on that. And what might be a sensible movement, a pragmatic movement with safeguards of this area? And with, within this figure too, there are certain aspects that some regulatory bodies may look at that and say, well, I don't really agree with that. I don't really agree that's currently possible. That that is almost built in by design. It's looking at that what is the what is the definition of state of the art within regulatory policy and regulatory action. It is developing over time. And I'm not really seeking to write an article which is behind the state of the art, but at the same time, I'm not seeking to write an article which is not discussing the safeguards and the evidence. And most of the article actually discusses methods one can use to develop evidence. And part of the focus of that is that is less towards AI devices or the aspects of assessment of the algorithm and more to do with the assessment of the full product from a holistic perspective, the perspective of the patient, the perspective of the clinician, patient-reported experience measures, clinician-reported experience measures, patient-reported outcome measures, et cetera, in terms of actually gathering data on the performance of the device. So talking about the conclusions of your work and also about moving forward from the current status quo, I would like to come to our final question to you for today, uh, which is something that is uh, recurring. Uh, we basically do it in every episode or almost every episode. So what would you say are the most important developments in AI as a medical device regulations across Europe or the US or UK, basically uh, internationally or uh, in the scope of your research uh, for the next five to, let's say, 10 years? So. Like the, the single most important question is the highly political question that I've touched on of the highly fraught position between big tech 
their occupation or increasing occupation of the medical space and the role of the regulator. And I mentioned Microsoft Nuance at the start, and I mentioned quite a lot about ChatGPT, GPT, OpenAI, Microsoft, and Google. But you're increasingly, increasingly these platforms are recognizing the importance of healthcare. There's a statement by Andreessen or Horowitz, I can't remember which from Andreessen and Horowitz, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest tech funders, that the, the next trillion dollar market capitalization company will be a consumer health company and actually will be a health company. And this is probably true. And it may actually be one of the current ones doubling their trillion dollar valuation through moving into this sector. Google and, and Apple and Microsoft and IBM are incredibly, are thinking a great deal about their role in consumer health and their role in health overall, increasingly seeing as consumer health. And they're kind of taking an approach which is not to operate within the conventional regulatory approaches at all. It's kind of some, to some extent go to the consumer. Some extent, like when you see Sanjay Pichar, I always mispronounce his name, but the CEO of Google, describing product launches with a, a surge of people in front of them, clamoring and cheering. You know, he's launching many products and they're not all health ones, but talking about X-ray AI analysis software and talking about Google Lens and people are like, wow, wow, isn't that amazing? It's actually going to the public and almost daring the regulator to regulate at the same time as an advancement right across medicine. So this is exactly one of the points I made at the Data for Health point. And it's not necessarily all bad or all good. It's a more of a question of what is wanted in Europe and what is wanted in the US. And there is an increasing, and data for health is highly relevant to this, question of how who accesses the data, who controls the data, what's the platform of the data, what is the platform for the machine learning, what is the access to the health tool, and to what extent do uh, a small number of tech, very large tech operators control that. Within the data for health meeting that Anna Brown and I both attended, you know, it's a really inspirational talk by Apple of the Apple ecosystem for that, which is very much based around, actually quite overlaps some of my own work and consent, patient participation or citizen participative decide, deciding of what they're happy with in terms of consent of data, use of data, in terms of the Apple framework, which I quite like, but I think that should be wider than purely within the Apple framework. The Google approach to, to really focus on delivering consumer value, not so much on data privacy, very much not so, but very much focused on we will take, deliver the product to the user, to the citizen. We will go to the citizen. They will clamor for our products. We'll build a whole series of ecosystem around that where it would actually be impossible, impossible for the European Union or any others to say, we're going to close that down. And if, as soon as they talk about doing this and, and open AI, Sam Altman will be quite similar to, to in this approach, say, we'll shut the whole thing down. In Canada, we've seen this a little bit with um, the press side in Australia, with the with certain aspects of um, the press side as well in terms of the owners of data and the payment for, for data. The, 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 the answer from the big tech companies, we'll shut it down completely. So there's a very political answer to what may have been a technical question. There is yet, as of yet, completely an unknown response of what the approach to the big regulators will actually be to this movement. And the reason I, I mentioned um, nuance quite a lot from this and also Google search from the side of the consumer, it starts in Google search and builds out from there, a whole ecosystem of health utilities that will build out from Google search, where the push will be to regulate almost none of them. So we've already seen it with Google Lens, but also from the pure search facility and having a, a diagnostic decision support system built within your search engine, um, image analysis without being a medical device built within your search engine, and then referral out to telemedicine to a whole series of health resources, pharmacy, without being any form of regulated device. Within the um, clinical side, 
we see that as um as as I mentioned, nuance quite a lot. So nuance it starts off from a relatively simple idea that will be very familiar to uh, a company, which which starts off from natural language processing of voice recorded doctor data, not initially using you know these highly developed you know transformer GPT approaches, but using natural language processing, transcribing what the doctor says. As soon as you start transcribing, the next logical step is ordering, autocomplete. As soon as you start doing transcribing and autocomplete, the next question is structuring and what's missing. The next step is ontologies and building in to a much more structured electronic health record, which is re representing the patient. Effectively, as soon as you start off on this detailed digitization of the doctor communication to the patient, you're already starting off on this stepwise march to the digitization of the complete patient inter interaction and decision support. Very detailed initially physician in the loop decision support. And that's a non-stop marching activity right through, throughout the entire medical experience. Within weeks of the launch of GPT-4, or very slightly before, there was launch, an announced integration of GPT-4 with Nuance, Microsoft Nuance and Dragon. And that's now a product in the market. Within weeks after, there was um, announced integration of GPT-4 within Epic, the 33% market shareholder of electronic health record systems in the US. Those are integrated already as decision support systems within the electronic health record. As non, they don't have FDA approval, but the argument is, is kind of it's kind of the other side of the argument that I'm presenting on the the the, the Nature Medicine paper. I'm saying these are so on the periphery of what's already defined as as um, as a medical device in the US. They're actually on the side of that periphery already, where they are a medical device. And in in the discussions of the of these the CEOs of these CEOs of these companies, they know this already. So you know that the 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 CEO of um, of Nuance talks a lot about regulation, where the regulator will step in, what the position is. But this is this is in the context. This is regulatory science in the context of geopolitics. At the same time, the CEOs of all these companies two weeks ago last week were in the White House meeting Biden, discussing, you know, do you all agree to behave very nicely? Yeah, of course you do. You're going to sign a piece of paper? Yeah, we all behave very nicely. And Biden is, of course, at the same time saying, well, do I want to stand in the way of all? These are all American companies. So it's not a single non-American company we've mentioned in this conversation. Do we really want to stand in the way of our surprising world dominance of AI? You know, everybody's talking about China and world dominance of AI. China are in position number six in the world maybe in terms of companies baidu might be a number six in the world with no access to nvidia chips with a you know a, a, a control of their ability to develop in this area and i don't see i'm i'm relatively realistic about the likelihood of the us regulator regulating in a in a manner which impedes the stepwise big tech Occupation of healthcare, and I'm, I'm even not from an American perspective. You know, from a European perspective, there's a there's a, a slight geopolitical economics argument from this. Are we happy that our European healthcare system is dominated by the tech giants? But even stepping away from that and saying from a US perspective, if I took from a US perspective, is that universally bad? I'd, it'd be very. I'm actually not sure that it's universally bad. I'm pretty sure from a European perspective, it's pretty universally bad. But from a U American perspective, one would have to compare it to what the status quo is and what the big health providers are providing within the space. And I, I might be slightly on the side of saying it might be positively disruptive in the US, whether that's the same in Europe, where there is not a single large European company, where effectively it's the outsourcing of the delivery of one of the largest economy sectors 
to a very large extent to three or four US large US providers. That's uh, some of my other work deals with the Digital Markets Act. I don't know if you, you, we haven't been discussing it in this in this podcast, but one of my um, previous papers was on the role of the big apps or the two app stores, you know, Apple and Google. There's um, at some point the European Union. Europe does need to decide to what extent is it prepared to completely export very, very large sectors of the future entirely to large US tech providers. If in the end the decision is that's our policy, who am I to stand against that? But one should be realistic about what is actually happening there. And there is a little bit in the Digital Markets Act to stand. There's a high, high level politics rather than training set and test set and level. There is a, a movement at some level in Europe to say there should be some boundaries on this. I've had a list of kind of three or four very, very important other issues, but I would say this is the single biggest. Yeah, indeed. So this is something, I guess, when you were talking to, I was increasingly realizing that digitization of the patient experience probably also means to a large extent patients will be treated outside the hospices. And if the healthcare is going outside the hospitals, then who owns the data and how the care is delivered is suddenly completely different than what was going on for the last hundred years or so. There's always a, a pushback against that to say that it will not happen. And it, it there has been talk of this over many years. Like um, there was a, a very high profile launched collaboration between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan. So hugely influential companies that um, from about five years ago, which kind of crashed and burned and no longer exists. And that was five years ago to try and go down this um, direction of um, revolutionizing from a data perspective, healthcare delivery in the U.S. And there are very, very large reasons why revolution of the current U.S. system, which is not really the best at delivering anything for anybody, perhaps sometimes the best for the very high-earning doctors and the shareholders within and the company owners within those systems, but maybe not too much on the patient side. There are very, very strong reasons why that will not change. One of the reasons it didn't go anywhere between that that, that kind of th- group of three companies in the past was internal competition within those and I think increasingly it's um, much more of an approach of um, Apple, which is much more of a consumer focus, specifically Google, which is both consumer and um, also healthcare system, and Amazon, I guess, healthcare system primarily, funnily enough, um, and, you know, via the consumer through purchasing and acquisition. And I think this will will be. I see this as the single biggest question about AI. You know, when you ask me about AI-enabled medical devices or AI, you know, I prefer I prefer AI-enabled medical devices, AI as medical device, um, as a term. But it's the single biggest question in terms of the the, the relative role of those um, you know, megalithic companies, monolithic companies, megalithic companies. Not megalithic is that word, but mega companies that are monolithic. Increasingly, of course, they they will always purchase startups. You will get some of the brightest people in those companies leaving and forming startups, which will then be acquired back by those companies. But the question of how the U.S. healthcare system changes and how it adapts and how it will be how it will choose to regulate all of the use cases we're talking about are data AI combinations. Of course, there's other aspects of digital health and there's usability and there's user experience, but effectively AI and even large language models goes right across those in terms of use cases. But it's the bigger question of how they will exist and interact with the healthcare system is the biggest question. And I, I may not be phrasing it quite as clearly as I could, but it's um, it's the 
I hope I'm partially getting there. Ask me in 10 months, 12 months time, because it's the biggest theme. It's mostly what I'm, I'm interacting with. Um, I, I probably will answer it better. Yeah, indeed. You will have a very busy five years or so, maybe longer in the coming, even a decade, probably where a massive change will happen in the regulatory science and how to really work on. We just barely touched some of the most essential questions, but Really, really all the best, Stephen. I, I really wish you play a critical role in really bringing the AI regulation into the European scene in a very successful way. Thank you so much for your time and all the best. <laughs>